All right. It is a blessing to be with you this morning. I am so grateful that you were able to be with us in person or online, whether you're watching live or watching later. This morning, uh, I'm going to be preaching on something that I wrote down as a sermon possibility months ago. I started to try to do that because I don't know about you, but if in your job you have things we have an opportunity to do on a, on a maybe an occasional basis, but not all the time, and sometimes the opportunity comes and you're like, oh, I had an idea for this opportunity and now I don't remember it. Songwriters do a good job of writing down song ideas. Book writers do a good idea of writing down book ideas. Uh, good preachers should do a good job of writing down good sermon ideas. And I finally maybe have arrived there. And so I, I hope it's a blessing to you this morning, but it was written down by me because it was something that I thought, ooh, I need this. I want to hear this. And so uh, we, we're going to take a look at a little bit of Israel's history. Uh, let's begin by just taking a big overview of the history of the Israelites. The history of the Israelites is complicated. Uh, they are born out of a promise, right? But even in the midst of that promise, there's complication in the children. And then the, the, the people are continued through deception and favoritism. Just read the stories of Jacob and Esau. Read the stories of the favorite younger son, Joseph. There are people who were saved from famine and favored in a foreign country, but then there are also a people who were enslaved by that same foreign country for 400 years and delivered by a murderer. There are wandering people led through the desert towards this land of promise, and that journey is long and complicated and full of highs and lows, and then they make it. And then they make it. But even as they make it to the land of promise, things continue to be complicated. You see, we pick up the story in Judges. And if you're at all familiar with Judges, which some of you are now because we've heard some lessons from there, it's not a pretty book. It's, it's kind of an ugly book. And yet, it's some of the best stories. But right here at the beginning of Judges, in Judges chapter 1, we have them entering into the promised land, and it talks about them trying to take over the land which God had promised. And over and over again, verse 21, verse 27, verse 29, 30, 31, 33, it says, but they failed to drive them out. God had said, go into this land and clear it of everybody else because I have given it to you. But they failed to drive them out. And you see, there were consequences to them not driving them out. If you go just to Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. 
verses 10 through 12. After the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up that knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. It's not 10 verses from the promise of God that what your disobedience has done will be a snare to you and it has become a snare to the people. Obviously, that's a much longer period of time in the history of the Israelites than less than 10 verses, but it's that quick. And sometimes people ask me, they'll say, hey, how come you're a youth minister? And I'll say, oh, just because I like to have fun. No, I actually never say that. It is true. I do like to have fun. And some people think, oh, it's just because he likes to play with kids. And certainly there's a lot of playing that gets to happen when you hang out with teenagers. But I do it because it's where the field is ripest. I do it because I don't want to be that generation that goes away and leaves a generation who knows neither the Lord nor what he's done for his people. And so I want us to see that here, but that is not what this sermon is about. This sermon is about how in Judges, you go through the entire thing and you make it to the end. And you would think, you see, Judges is a book about the Israelites going into sin, crying out to God, God raising up a judge to lead them out of their traps. And there are moments of beauty where the people are serving God, but it's this cyclical thing. And you would think, after 21 chapters of God raising up people from Israel to lead them back to Him, they might actually stay. But last verse, chapter 21, verse 25 of Judges says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In those days... Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Oh, my thing went off. There we go. And so we have the context of our story today. The context is a context of mis- disobedience, mistrust, chaos even. I mean, imagine a place where everyone simply did as they saw fit. Maybe you're thinking you're living in it. I don't know. But the truth is, we don't all just do as we see fit because there are laws that all of us follow to some degree or there would, in fact, be chaos. And in our spiritual lives, the same is true. And here we have the people of God living in chaos. And so let me read that verse to you again, but let me not stop where the book ends. I'm going to jump to the very next book. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In the days when the judges ruled. So, our context is in the midst of this chaos. There was famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. 
When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud. And, she said to her, and, and they said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they were grown up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging. And so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. This was a desperate journey. Naomi is urging her two daughters-in-law to leave because she's assuming she will live in destitute for the rest of her life. Live in destitution for the rest of her life. She says, it is worse for me than it is for you. I'm too old to have another husband. I will have to live on the fringes of society. Just go back where you might have a chance. I also think she's saying, let me be miserable and just be alone in my misery. Because that's what we do, right? And yet, Ruth says, no. No. I'm tied to you. Do not make me leave. I would like to just read the whole book to you. <laughs> it is only four chapters, but I think it might be helpful for some of us who are more visual to see the story summarized on the screen. So, we're going to see if this video will play for us. Gab's story, Ruth. So part of Gab's story is about a woman named Ruth, and it begins like this. Ruth lived in a place called Moab and was married to a guy who was part of Gad's special family, the Israelites. A few years later, though, Ruth's husband died. Instead of returning to her family, which would have been expected, she stayed with Naomi, her husband's mom. Naomi tried to get Ruth to go back to her family in Moab, but Ruth wouldn't leave Naomi, no matter what. In fact, she wanted to go back to Israel with her. Ruth said, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. So they both returned to Naomi's home in Bethlehem. Back then, though, it was hard for women to find work. Usually, they had to be taken care of by their husband or a dad. 
It's really hard to imagine that now, but Naomi and Ruth might not have even known how they'd survive. At first, to get food, Ruth went to the fields of a man named Boaz and followed his harvesters around. If they dropped anything, even just a piece of grain, she picked it up. This was called gleaning. Ruth worked from morning to night and barely even took a break. Boaz noticed. He told his workers to leave behind some extra grain for her to gather. When Naomi heard about this, she was overjoyed because Boaz was Naomi's relative and what's called a family redeemer. That meant that it was his responsibility to take care of his family. If anybody was going to rescue Ruth and Naomi, it was Boaz. Kids, we have a redeemer too. It's Jesus. He's the one who saves us. Anyway, this gave Naomi an idea. She told Ruth to put on her best clothes and perfume and then go to the place where Boaz was sleeping. Naomi said that once Boaz had gone to sleep, Ruth should lay down by his feet. Now, this may sound like a weird plan, but it was actually really brave. Ruth trusted Naomi and obeyed. When Boaz woke up, he was surprised. After all, someone was lying at his feet. That's not exactly a normal night. When Boaz asked who Ruth was, she said, I am your servant. You are my family redeemer. Now Boaz understood. Ruth wanted Boaz to marry her so that she and Naomi would both be taken care of. Boaz agreed. This was a huge deal. Ruth wasn't an Israelite, but she wanted to follow God anyway. By marrying Boaz, she got to officially be part of God's family. In fact, Ruth's great-grandson was King David, and many, many years later, Jesus, the rescuer, was born into the same family line. Now, because of Jesus, we get to be a part of God's family too. So. All right. Like I said, that was a lot quicker than me just reading it to you and maybe helped you out. You see, through an outsider, Ruth, a seed was planted in which through time grew the savior of the world. In the midst of, of, of disobedience, in the midst of chaos, there's this small act of kindness. Ruth said, I will stay with you in your misery. No, no matter how much Naomi tried to convince her, it would be miserable for her too. Ruth said, I will, I will be miserable if it means I be with you. And that small act of kindness led to a really big blessing. Now that, that act of kindness led also to an opportunity for someone else to show kindness. Boaz also said, oh, I'm noticing there's someone taking the leftover grain. Leave more. He didn't have to do that. And in doing that, it made, it made Ruth speak to Naomi and say, hey, there's this guy. And she goes, oh, I know this guy. He can help us. I don't know about you, but for me, this is God going, connect the dot, connect the dot, connect the dot, connect the dot, right? And it's beautiful to see a small offering multiplied. I give you a little bit of grain. And you bravely take the next step to say, oh, you'll give me grain? How about a ring? Let's put a ring on it. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize who you were. We are connected. 
Because obviously, if he had seen Ruth, he would have recognized her as a foreigner. She doesn't look like him. She doesn't talk like him. She's not from where he's from. Until she says, I was married to the son of Naomi. You are my family redeemer. And he goes, you are my family. I'm supposed to take care of you. A small act of kindness multiplied. And not only does Ruth get taken care of, Naomi gets taken care of, and not only do Ruth and Naomi get taken care of, but as the end of the video told us, this line is the beginning of Christ entering into the world. Here's what I want you to see at this point. No matter how dark it looks, no matter how bad it seems, when the world has no king and everyone does as they see fit, a small act of kindness can allow Christ to break into the world. A small act of kindness, a decision to stay faithful to a person led to the great, 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 grandmother of Jesus being an outsider. And that is beautiful. You see, this is not just an Old Testament story. This is you and I's story. And this is Jesus' story. In John chapter 6, we see Jesus feeding the 5,000. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. But Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? A small offering... You think, oh, he's got five pieces of bread. Five small pieces of bread. Oh, he's got two fish, two small fish. A meal for a boy. Jesus says, perfect. I'll take that. And on a small scale, as if to help us to understand the grand thing which had already played out with Ruth and Boaz leading to King David, leading to Jesus, Jesus puts on the small scale and says, I will take your small offering and I will multiply it. And I will meet a physical need that all of these people can understand and see and feel so that maybe, just maybe, my disciples will be able to see with their eyes the need which I now can fulfill in them and in the world because of the small act of kindness that Ruth did for Naomi that then my father took and multiplied. And for me, it's this wonderful, beautiful picture, whatever you have, offered to Jesus can be multiplied by God to become more than what is needed. This is what Jesus meant when he told his disciples that with the faith of a mustard seed, they could move a mountain. I don't have a lot when I think about what I can do for the grand big needs of this world. I don't have a lot When I think about what I can do for the needs of a single teenager in this church, 
But if I can offer whatever I do have to God, do I have enough faith to believe that he will use it? That he will not only use it, but that he will multiply it? That he might take the seed which I offer and plant it in good soil and produce a fruit 30, 60, 100 fold? Do I see these stories and think this is beyond me? This is not what I can do. This is someone else. Or do I see it in me? One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. I can imagine what it feels like to receive a hug when I'm hurting. And I can imagine how good that feels. I can imagine even what it feels like to have somebody stay alongside me for the long haul. But I cannot imagine how a single hug might change the trajectory of a person's life. I cannot imagine how a single offering of whatever small thing I have could change the course of history. Boaz could never have foreseen that telling his people to drop a little bit more grain would invite that woman to become his wife. Nor could he have foreseen that accepting that woman as his wife would somehow lead to the Savior of the world being born later. And in fact, he didn't see it, at least not in his lifetime. You see, I began by saying, many people ask me, why are you a youth minister? And they're usually asking, why did you become a youth minister? And my answer is, because I learned about the harvest being plentiful among those 18 and under. And because I want to raise up a generation who knows God. But always, I stay a youth minister because I have no idea what the small acts I do might do in the future. You see, I shouldn't still be a youth minister if I was basing it on my success rate. You may be familiar with the fact that anywhere from 50 to 80% of our young people leave the church after they get out of youth group. There are plenty of youth ministers who've quit on account of this. In my own specific ministry, if you talk to me about specific students, I could tell you about some kids that I have been able to impact and seen the good that it has done. I can tell you about many more that I have felt like I impacted for a moment and it didn't go anywhere. And to this day, there are students I pray for because I don't know God. And if I tried to continue in my youth ministry, Based on my success rate, I shouldn't be here. But you don't know what you don't know. (laughs) The truth is, God is big enough to take whatever seed I might have planted five, ten years ago. And five, ten, twenty-five, thirty, when I'm old and gone, can then produce from that seed a growth. And I want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you to take whatever seed you might have 
I want to encourage you to plant it. I don't want you to be discouraged by all the times before. Oh, come on. There we go. I don't want you to be discouraged by all the times before that maybe you feel like didn't succeed. I don't want you to be discouraged by, by the way the kids are today. I get it. I get it. They're weirdos. Guys, you're weirdos. They say weird words. They think weird things. They disagree with the most sound logic you've ever said to them in your life. And they're children of God. And I just want to encourage you, if you have grown children who are unfaithful, to continue to give your small acts of kindness out of faith that God might use those things to his glory. And so I want to read to you, well, actually, before we do that, I'm going to close with that. I want to say this. We cannot foresee what God will do with even our smallest acts of faith. No matter the context, no matter the obstacles, God is at work in the selfless acts of his people to bring about the good that he wants done in the world. We need only to be faithful with what God has given to us and to continue to pour ourselves out in selfless acts that demonstrate our faith in the provision of the Lord. And even when all seems against God, he can and will take our offering and bring a harvest 30, 60, or 100-fold. We ourselves may never see the results of our actions, but it can change the course of history in the hands of our great God. Amen. And so I want to read the whole passage that verse 20 of Ephesians comes from. Because it is a prayer of blessing prayed by Paul over the Ephesians that I want to now pray over us. Beginning in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason... I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. If you need to respond this morning to that God who is so powerful, he can take our small acts and multiply them. If you need to come forward this morning and repent of the life that you've lived against that God, if you want to come forward and ask for prayers for those people in your life who have yet to respond to that God, I want to encourage you to do so this morning.